I've always had a thing for archers. And a lot of my favorite fictional characters have been famed for bending a bow to their will and making it do incredible things. Robin Hood, of course, might be the first, best example, but there were others that always drew my attention. One of my favorite superheroes was, and still is, Green Arrow. And I loved that in the Mike Grell series, he literally hung out at a flower shop called the Sherwood Florist. I remember seeing the story of William Tell on an episode of Max the 2,000-Year-Old Mouse and thinking that was a pretty wild story. I liked characters like Yondu and Hawkeye in the comics as well when I was a kid, although their cinematic interpretations aren't really what I was hoping for. My favorite all-time Dungeons & Dragons character from years ago was an archer, skilled in the ways of Bo Fu. And who among us didn't feel our hearts pound in our chest when Legolas performed his mighty heroic feats in the Lord of the Rings films? It's okay if we rolled our eyes at them in the Hobbit movies, though. When I was a kid, I had a bow. When Sam was a kid, she had a bow. There's just something about the way that simple piece of technology can extend your reach across a space, delivering your intention to a target. Or near the target. Or in the vague direction of the target. The thing of it is, although it's an easy thing to pick up and do, it's very hard to get good at. And seeing characters who have mastered this skill seems somehow more relatable. This is a skill you can learn. You can go to the store right now and get everything you'd need. You could start today. And maybe, maybe you could be Robin Hood. Or Green Arrow. Goodness knows, such thoughts preoccupied a good deal of my childhood. I was never going to find a magic ring. Or learn I'd come to Earth from another planet or get bitten by a radioactive anything. But maybe I could get good with a bow. It's easy to get lost in that kind of daydream when you love works of fiction like storybooks and comics. And when you love old movies. Hello, film historians. I'm Derek, and I love old movies. We've got Sam the Sidekick here. Hello, and welcome to episode 36. As we continue our theme of adventure movies in April with 1938's The Adventures of Robin Hood, directed by Michael Curtis and starring Errol Flynn. These were two guys who worked together a lot. Most of Flynn's biggest films were directed by Curtis. Are they the John Wayne and John Ford of Warner Brothers? Well... Arguably, they were a bit more dynamic. Curtis was close to Ford in terms of ability, and I think maybe more versatile. Errol Flynn wasn't much more nuanced than Wayne, but a lot brasher and flamboyant. It's an interesting compare and contrast between those two pairings. But critically, it's important to remember that while Ford and Wayne certainly had their creative tensions, Curtis and Flynn hated each other. What? Seriously? Why? Well, Curtis was a perfectionist and very confrontational, and not afraid of putting actors and animal safety far behind his desire to get on camera what he wanted. Flynn was much more laid back, and he didn't value preparation very much. And he didn't have a great mind for line memorization either. Okay, so two very different dudes. Oh, and Flynn was married to Curtis's ex-wife. 
And there it is. Yep. It definitely led to the tension between the men. But they proved over a series of films that their antipathy towards each other didn't prevent them from making good movies. Totally. That's very cool about them. Also cool is that we're heading into an Easter-long weekend. Love that four-day weekend. So if Easter is something you observe, have a great one. Yep. And if you just like using the time to visit family and friends... Or maybe listen to your favorite podcasts while driving to get milkshakes. Mm. Have a great time doing that, too. Now I want a milkshake. After the show. <laughs> All right. So let's do some business and get on with things. So business number one, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. We really love doing the show and putting this out there for you. And it's really cool to see the listen numbers keep going up. Yeah. Obviously, we had a huge opening with Yellow Sky, but last week's Moby Dick did great as well, easily being our second best opening week of all time for a new episode. We keep playing with the format a little bit all the time, so if you've ever got ideas or suggestions for us, say maybe for films we should do or aspects of films we should look at or consider, let us know. And if you could, please take a moment now to hit like, subscribe, and share. Especially share. The sharing is the big one. Or, if you are on an audio-only platform, see about dropping us some stars and maybe a quick review. You'd be surprised how much that sort of thing really helps. And then, what the heck, why not check us out on the socials? Why not indeed? After all, we are on the Facebook. I Love Old Movies, the podcast. The Instagram. At I Love Old Movies, the podcast. El Twitter. At Ilom Podcast. And the good old-fashioned email. I love old movies, the podcast at gmail.com. All one word. And of course, you should also do what all the cool kids do, which is pet the rock. And by that, we mean head on over to petrockradio.ca to listen to amazing local web-based radio programming with fantastic music and previous episodes of our show broadcast three times a week. Monday, Saturday, and Sunday. Pretty damn cool. We'll link that for you in the description. So... Off to Sherwood Forest, huh? Shall we uh, meet up at the Gallows Oak? I'm bringing my bow. Hit the music. Hungarian-born American director Michael Curtis is seen as one of the most prolific film directors in history. He first began acting in and directing films in 1912 in Hungary and spent several years traveling around Europe making movies. He had shot a total of 64 films there before transitioning to work with Warner Brothers in Hollywood in 1926, where he directed another 102 films. Curtis's directing style is recognized for its use of artistic lighting and fluid camera movements. The 30s and 40s saw him making multiple film classics, and he was known to work in practically any genre. However, his work in swashbuckler movies is very notable, with his work on Captain Blood in 1935 and The Adventures of Robin Hood in 1938. Hurt has worked with many big-name actors over the years, including James Cagney, Joan Crawford, Doris Day, John Garfield, Errol Flynn, Olivia de Havilland, Betty Davis, and even Elvis Presley. Despite having a poor relationship... Errol Flynn and Curtis worked together a total of 12 times, including on some of their best films, such as The Charge of the Light Brigade in 36, Dodge City in 39, The Adventures of Robin Hood and Captain Blood. He is most known for his work on these films, as well as being the director of Casablanca in 1942 and Mildred Pierce in 1945. 
Hurt has won only one Oscar in his career for Casablanca, but he was nominated three more times for Yankee Doodle Dandy, Angels with Dirty Faces, and Four Daughters. Curtis's work slowly dwindled down in the 1950s, with no large or notable films, with the possible exception being King Creole with Elvis Presley. He made his last film a year before his death in 1962, at the age of 75. The writer is Norman Riley Rain. Rain's writing career began with him mostly doing work with various newspapers before transitioning to Broadway in 1933. While there, he wrote the script for The Hangman's Whip, which was adapted into the film White Woman later that year. He later made his way to Hollywood, writing his first screenplay, Tugboat Annie, in 1933. Rain worked on several films in the late 30s, but he started getting less and less work through the 40s and into the 50s. Rain is best known for his work on The Adventures of Robin Hood in 1938 and The Life of Emile Zola in 1937, for which he received an Oscar. He died in 1971 at the age of 77. Born in Tasmania in 1909, it's hard to know what about Errol Flynn is more outlandish, more outstanding, more incredible. His ascent and fall in Hollywood, or his personal life. As much an action movie anti-hero in real life as he was in his films, Flynn was a -a one-of-a-kind character on and off screen. His global adventures led him from Australia to New Guinea and all the way to England to pursue a career on stage that led to him being discovered by Warner Brothers and casting Captain Blood in 1935. Along the way, he managed a coconut plantation, scammed older wealthy women for their riches, recruited slave laborers, profited in the cockfighting scene, joined and then abandoned the Hong Kong army, captained a ship, and prospected for gold. Flynn's good looks, classy demeanor, and worldly toughness translated to film perfectly. Instantly marketed by the studio and accepted by audiences as a a sex symbol and action hero, Flynn became the archetype of the man that every man wanted to be and every woman wanted to be with. And over a six-year span until 1941, he made an impressive group of films, including The Charge of the Light Brigade, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Dawn Patrol, Santa Fe Trail, The Seahawk, and They Died With Their Boots On. He worked with Michael Curtis on several films, always achieving great results despite the intense mutual dislike between the two men. And he found a frequent co-star in Olivia de Havilland, with whom he made seven films. Flynn was an excellent on-screen sword fighter and did many of his own stunts, leaping and racing across set pieces, bringing astounding feats of daring do to life perfectly and believably to audiences. In 1941, though, things went a bit sideways for him, as years of alcohol and drug-fueled sexcapades led to him being charged with statutory rape for his affairs with a pair of 17-year-old girls, Betty Hansen and Petty Satterley. Flynn's defense was essentially that the girls got what they wanted, and Lotharios like himself cannot be expected to ID every prospective conquest. The trial was a media circus. Flynn was acquitted, becoming an even bigger sex symbol in the process, and not learning any lessons from the trial at all. Flynn's next wife was only 18 when they met. And his final girlfriend? He met when she was 15. After the trial, it's probably fair to say that his career was never quite the same. The hits weren't as big, the films less frequent, and he spent more and more time partying on his yacht, or at his Jamaica estate, falling deeper and deeper into alcoholism. By the 1950s, his face and physique showed the ravages of alcohol, 
which could have been the end for him. But instead, it opened up a late career renaissance of him playing characters who were essentially drunken rogues. Most notably in 1958's Too Much Too Soon, where he played his former drinking buddy John Barrymore. Flynn famously quipped, I make more today being a shadow of my former self than I did when I was my former self. He had spent most of the 1950s either making low-budget films or movies in Europe, so seeing some success upon his return to Hollywood was seen as a good thing for him, and even led to him having a meeting with Stanley Kubrick about playing the lead in Lolita, which really might have been an absolutely dream metacasting. But by then, Flynn was already unwell, with years of hard living having taken their toll. Problems with his heart and liver, brought upon by years of abuses, led to his death in Vancouver, British Columbia, at the age of 50. His posthumously released autobiography, My Wicked Wicked Ways, which is quite a read, contained this incredibly self-aware line. I am dangerous to be with because, since I live dangerously, others are subject to the danger that I expose myself to. And they're more likely to get hurt than I. We've spoken in the past about exotic life and tremendous acting career of Joan Fontaine. But Joan Fontaine's sister was pretty magnificent in her own right. In the role of Marion, we have the legendary Olivia de Havilland. After finishing high school, de Havilland wanted to pursue a career in teaching, but a community theatre role as Puck in A Midsummer Night's Dream led her to being discovered and recruited into a professional company's production for the same play, with a switch to the role of Hermia. This led to her being cast in the film adaptation the following year, and a contract with Warner Brothers. Her next film was Captain Blood, made with Curtis and Flynn. In Flynn, de Havilland found a perfect co-star, and together, they made an incredible screen couple, appearing cultured, beautiful, and dynamic. Captain Blood was the first of seven films the pair made together in the next six years, with Robin Hood being the third. Well established as an actress who could support or lead by this point, she was soon cast in Gone with the Wind in the role of Melanie. For this role, which required a great deal of wrangling to get Jack Warner to agree to lend her to MGM, she gained her first Oscar nomination. Over the course of the 1940s, she would be nominated five times, winning Best Actress twice for To Each His Own in 1946 and The Heiress in 1949. Despite her many acting accolades and her general stature in the world of the performing arts, one of her greatest triumphs is probably the lawsuit she launched against Warner Brothers when her contract expired. Warner had informed her that they were arbitrarily extending the contract, and she fought that choice in court, winning both in lower court and again on appeal. Her Warner contract now officially terminated, de Havilland was free to work with other studios. This kind of control over her career was completely out of alignment with how the studio system in Hollywood operated, and this lawsuit is looked at as the benchmark moment in the eventual downfall of the system. Even her estranged sister Joan had to concede that Hollywood owes a great deal to Olivia. After moving to France in the 1950s, her film acting career slowed down considerably as she focused on family, stage plays, and other pursuits. By the 70s, she was circling the drain with late career appearances in terrible films such as 
Swarm, and Airport 77. Her last feature film performance was in 1979's The Fifth Musketeer, and despite a few television appearances in the 80s, and the fact that she stayed fairly close to the industry even in retirement, she never returned to the screen. Considered the last surviving link to the era of old Hollywood, Olivia de Havilland died in 2020 at the age of 104. The plan was clearly for The Adventures of Robin Hood to be the biggest, most expensive film that Warners had ever produced. With a huge cast and the distinction of being the first Technicolor film that Warners had done, expectations were high. James Cagney was originally cast in the lead, but when he walked away from his studio contract, the door was open to recast with Errol Flynn. And since he and de Havilland were a fantastic pairing in Captain Blood, which Michael Curtis had directed, the screen duo were brought in together. Flynn turned in a career performance, really defining the character and setting a benchmark that is still used today. As Karloff was Frankenstein's monster and as Lugosi is Dracula, Errol Flynn is Robin Hood. Full stop. Yeah, he's who I think of. It's almost a stereotypical presentation of the character, but yeah. I think to a lot of people, his version of Robin Hood is the most storybook brought to life. And as an actor, he was perfectly cast. Oh, for sure. His Tasmanian accent seemed authentic enough for moviegoers. He was a very handsome guy. And he famously did most of his own stunts, making his action scenes seem more legitimate and genuine, since we could see his face doing the things. Tell me about the archery. Because this movie is all about the archery. Yeah, okay. So back in those days, the go-to archery specialist for films was a guy named Howard Hill. And Hill fired all the shots you see in this film. Even the arrow split? Yeah, he actually did split an arrow, and they got it on film. But it didn't look right, so that clip isn't used. The one we see does utilize a few special effects tricks, including a guide wire, a larger-than-normal prop target arrow, and a special head on the striking arrow to make it look more dramatic on impact. As well, Hill developed special body armor-type gadgets that actors and stuntmen wore that allowed Hill to shoot arrows right into them. What? That's nuts. You'd never get to do that today. Right? Can you imagine? So in this scene, that expert archer over there is going to shoot you right in the chest with an arrow. For real. And action. <laughs> How did he not kill everyone? So the target plates were made of balsa wood and sheet metal. And the balsa wood allowed the arrow to penetrate, letting it look like it was sinking into flesh underneath clothing or armor. And the metal plate would stop the arrow. That must have hurt. Oh, yeah. But the end result gave viewers quite a visceral treat. And this was a colorful, visually lush movie with a great cast. There were such supporting performers as Claude Rains, Basil Rathbone, and Alan Hale Sr., reprising his own role as Little John from the 1922 version with Douglas Fairbanks. And they topped it all off with absolutely great action scenes. So people must have loved it. Did they love it? Oh, they did. The film earned about $4 million at the box office, and this is back in the days when tickets cost a quarter. Reviews were generally very positive at the time, praising the performances, especially Flynn's, but also aspects of the production, like the action sequences, the costumes, and the plot notes. The film had something for everyone. It was expected to be a well-received hit, and it was. It's nice when everything works out. <laughs> I'll say. What's the tale of the tape on this one, Sam? Okay, so we have a 7.9 on IMDb. Mm -hmm. 
The audience score is 89% on Rotten Tomatoes, mm. and the tomato meter is 100%. The film won Oscars for Best Art Direction, Best Film Editing, and Best Original Score, and it can be watched on Amazon Prime. It's 1191 in merry old England, and King Richard the Lionheart has gotten himself captured by the Duke of Austria. This leads to his jerk brother, John, making a play for the throne, naming himself regent, and raising taxes wildly. The money is supposed to be used to ransom back Richard, but really, it's going to be used to fund John's aspirations to become king. The Normans, this is John and his men, are doing the oppressing, and the Saxons, everyone else, they're the ones being oppressed. Much the miller's son is beset by Sir Guy of Gisborne for the crime of poaching one of the king's deer. Before he can be executed, Sir Robin of Loxley, a Saxon nobleman, arrives and scares Sir Guy off. Much pledges himself to Robin. That night, a great banquet is being held at Nottingham Castle, and Robin shows up to call John and Sir Guy out for their shenanigans. He tells them that he will organize a rebellion to stop them and their treasonous actions. In response, John orders Robin's death and seizes his lands. Much is sent to tell townsfolk of Robin's plan, while Robin and his pal Will Scarlet roam the deep green of Sherwood Forest. They meet Little John, and he and Robin have a quarterstaff battle, each earning the other's respect. Soon, many, many more men join Robin's rebellion, and they swear an oath to aid the poor and fight the injustice caused by John's tyranny. Soon, every time some of John or Sir Guy's men show up to cause problems, an arrow flies in from off-screen, killing them. Rebellion via arrow sniping. It's the Sherwood Forest way. Renowned swordsman and food lover Friar Tuck soon joins Robin's men, and the band launch a huge assault on a Norman caravan of food and tax money. Sir Guy, the Sheriff of Nottingham, and the Lady Marion are all in the caravan and are taken to Robin's secret hideaway deep in the forest. The Merry Men hold a huge celebration banquet at which Guy and the Sheriff are humiliated, but Marion is treated with great respect. Robin shows her the villagers that have been injured or wounded or maimed by Prince John's men, and she begins to understand where Robin is coming from. Robin's men make it clear that all the money they stole from Sir Guy's caravan belongs to King Richard and no one else. And also, it's pretty clear that Robin and Marion are a bit smitten with each other. There is an awful lot of smitting, that's for sure. Well, the sheriff notices this, and he suggests using Marion as bait by having her present the prize of a golden arrow to whoever can win an archery competition. The plan is that Robin will come out of hiding to win this contest, and they will capture him. It's simple. Ingenious. So, predictably, Robin comes out of hiding, wins the competition, and, well, they capture him. Simple and ingenious. Like I said. But Marion isn't done having a role to play in all of this, and she helps the Merry Men stage a daring rescue that saves Robin from execution. And then Robin visits her at night, and they profess their love for one another. Moving quite quickly, Robin wants her to come into the forest with him and get married, but she suggests that she could be a valuable spy by remaining in the castle. 
but on her very first spy mission, Sir Guy catches her and has her arrested. Yeah, that didn't go so great. It turns out that Richard is back in England, traveling incognito. But the Bishop of the Black Cannons figured out who he was and told John who sent an assassin. Marion was able to get word to Robin, but found herself in a dungeon cell pretty quickly. Robin and his men search frantically for the king, while much goes to kill the assassin. The merry men waylay Richard and his retinue, still in disguise, mind you, and bring them into the forest for safety without knowing who they are. Once Richard realizes how loyal Robin and his men are, he reveals his identity. Richard and his crusader knights team up with Robin and the merry men to sneak into Nottingham Castle just in time to stop John's coronation. A huge fight breaks out, and Robin and Sir Guy have an epic sword fight, ending with Guy's death and Marion being saved. John's remaining men surrender. King Richard returns Robin's noble titles, and even promotes him to a baron and earl while pardoning the Merry Men. In his final command, he orders Robin to take Marion as his wife, which pleases them both. And they all lived happily ever after. Until the events of Robin and Marion. Oh man, in the parallel universe where that film is the sequel to this one? Oof. Takes the sheen off the ending for sure. This was a really entertaining film. Yeah. They don't make them like this anymore, and definitely should. Oh, I agree. Let's pro and con this guy. Okay, so as always, we don't actually rate films here on the show. There's no stars, there's no thumbs. We just tell you some things we liked. Some things we didn't. And then we recommend whether or not you might enjoy giving this one a watch. Take it away. My pros. Number one, the wonderful production values. There are gorgeous costumes and absolutely fantastic musical score that blares when it must and is subtle when needed. My God, it's wonderful to listen to. The sets, especially the great room of Nottingham Castle, are incredible looking. You talk about a film as being more than the sum of its parts, and this one certainly is, but the parts themselves? They're magnificent, right across the board. Number two, the action scenes. From the banquet hall scene, to meeting Little John and Friar Tuck, to the robbery of the ransom money, to the climactic fight at the castle, the action in this movie was probably cutting edge for 1938, and it still holds up incredibly well today. The sword fighting is excellent. Errol Flynn's daring do is a thrill to watch, and the choreography is great. The final battle scene in the castle is simply incredible. There's so much coordinated mayhem going on, and Robin's men all get a chance to shine on camera. And Robin's fight against Sir Guy is one of my favorite sword fights in film history. It's wonderfully shot and planned out, and Guy is a beast of a villain, every bit Robin's equal, which makes Robin's win so much more satisfying. Number three, the performances. Obviously, our leads do great. This is Flynn's signature role, and de Havilland was just beginning to scratch the potential of the height she would reach. But the supporting cast really holds up their end of the job here. And this is something Warners did very well in those days, because their acting roster was so deep in terms of talent. Claude Rains, Basil Rathbone, and Alan Hale are great in this movie. But so are Una Connor as Bess. Eugene Pallet as Friar Tuck, Melville Cooper as the Sheriff, and many of the rest. Everyone seems really dialed in and having a good time making a big, crazy costume drama, and it makes it a lot of fun to watch. Now my cons, number one, in some scenes, there's almost too much to look at. The banquet scene and the scene in Sherwood, the archery tournament, they're also packed with costumes and set pieces and banners and flags. The shots are just 
crammed with things to look at. You can't possibly take it all in. I found myself wondering what I missed as much as what I saw. This can only count as the most nitpicky of critiques, though. I think had the film been shot in a better aspect ratio, and that just wasn't an option in 1938, everything could have breathed a little bit more. Curtis makes every shot count in this film, and every dollar spent is right up there on screen. There's no doubt about it. It's just... it's a lot to take in at some points. Number two, the fat jokes at the expense of Friar Tuck haven't aged well into an era of body positivity and acceptance. While it's fine that the characters in this movie are all gifted with great senses of humor and tremendous mirth, the stream of jokes about Tuck's weight just seem like weakly punching down. And number three, the pacing of the film takes a weird downturn once Robin escapes from his execution. The story needed to build the romance, I guess, and that needed some time, and Flynn and de Havilland make a great on-screen couple. But the film is just so exciting and brisk up to that point, it just feels like, it, like the brakes are thrown on so we can get some lovey-dovey in. Things speed back up once the absolutely bonkers final battle scene hits, but that slowdown is noticeable. And really, that's all on Marion. The movie briefly switches to be about her, and she's just not as interesting or dynamic a character as Robin. However, on whole, it's hard to imagine this film being any better than it was. It has so many of the things I love and so little of the things that I don't that it's obviously getting a watch recommendation from me. Really, you know what, I'll go a bit further. This is a must-watch. It's required viewing. Watch it multiple times. You're up. Okay. My pros. One. The music. I loved it so much. I'm not really sure how to describe it, but it was just very full-sounding, and it served to enhance every scene. It wasn't just this generic old score that you could find in any film you watch. It, it was unique, and it fit with the film. It really made the scenes in the forest so much more exciting and energetic. The tournament, too. It also really added to the fight scenes. It got me right on the edge of my seat during the final fight at that castle, for sure. So much was going on, but it was still so interesting and fun. 2. The sets. They were just so nice. So bright and colorful and pretty to look at. The castle was beautiful. So spacious and grand looking. Everything was physically large and imposing, adding sort of to the regalness of Prince John. It all contrasted really nicely with Robin Hood and his friends, who literally just spent most of their time in the forest or a dingy old tavern. And also, can I just say that I would love to have a door bigger than a car? <laughs> 3. The Action Wow. Just wow. Some of the things done in the film were just unbelievable. Like, Robin Hood and the others literally jumping out of super tall trees to ambush people. I'm sure they caught them off guard, but those were pretty big drops. Also, the fact that people were legitimately getting hit by arrows during the fight scenes was pretty cool. I know that they had that board of wood under their costumes, but still. I did, however, find it really amusing how often tables and chairs were used as weapons against people. Whenever there was a fight in the castle, it felt like a table was getting flipped over every two seconds. What's even crazier is that Errol Flynn did almost all of his own stunts. 
that is super cool and impressive. There was so much action in the film, and I totally loved it. Now my cons. 1. Some scenes were too busy. Mainly the scenes with a lot of people. The feast in the forest, the tournament, some of the action sequences. Now, they were still really great scenes, but I had no idea where to look. There was just so much going on, so much stuff. The shots looked kind of crowded. The mise-en-scene had so many people and colors and objects. They became a little overpowering. Almost claustrophobic as well. Everything seemed kind of squished into the shots, but the energy in the scenes never died down, so it was all moving like crazy. These scenes were just a lot. They were a bit too much. 2. The Hoods Okay, so apparently if you want to go unnoticed, all you have to do is put a hood on. It was ridiculous when Robin was talking with Prince John and expected to not be recognized. What's even worse is that the only reason he was recognized at the tournament was because of his archery skills. Not even because his face was out in the open. And then King Richard literally did the same thing. It makes no sense that they can talk to people they have met before and not be recognized just because they're wearing a hood. 3. The Timeline Honestly, it was kind of sketchy. Even the little intertitle things didn't say when things were happening, just that it happened. Did the film take place over two weeks or six months? We'll never know. And when Marion was asking Bess for help, it was clearly stated that Bess had been meeting with Much for quite a while. Does that mean a lot of time passed between when Marion and Robin met each other? I just would have liked some more clarification here. But overall, this is definitely a watch. It's an easy film to love, and I do. All right. And with that, that comes the end of another episode. Did you enjoy it? Is this your Robin Hood? Or is there another version you feel is best? Let us know all about it in the comments. And be sure to come back next week when we trade the forest for the brutal conditions of the Mexican desert as we look at the treasure of the Sierra Madre, starring Humphrey Bogart and directed by John Huston. I'm really excited to watch another Bogart film. This will be really good. I am looking forward to this as well. Bogie was my first big old movie favorite actor, and I think this is one of his better films, and certainly one of his best performances. Can't wait. But until then, be sure to watch more movies. And let everyone know about us. We are not a secret, and you don't have to keep us all to yourselves. So tell your friends. Tell your enemies. You never know. They might like stealing from the rich and giving to the poor as much as you do. Maybe even more. For Sam the Sidekick, I'm Derek, and I love old movies. Additional research for I Love Old Movies, the podcast, is done by Nikki Weatherden. Audio clips come from prefx.co.uk. Images are used through the provisions of fair use, and our theme song, Burning Bridges, is by The Crocs.